I have a friend. Her name is Florence List. And Florence is actually a member of the Green Tree Church of the Brethren. And uh, she was a nurse in the Springford Area School District. I think she was spent many years at Spring City Elementary School as a nurse there. And she also volunteered at Camp Swatara for summer camp and served as a nurse there. But Florence has a collection. And I would venture that it's a collection that probably none of you has. And if you do have the same collection as, as Florence, um, it's probably not as extensive as Florence's collection is. Florence collects four-leaf clovers. And she has an amazing collection, many of which she has found herself. Now, some will say that Florence List is very lucky. Perhaps they've come to that conclusion because she owns so many four-leaf clovers. But maybe they say that because she's found so many four-leaf clovers. But I'm here to tell you today that luck has nothing to do with it. After all, there is no such thing as luck. Uh, that is a discussion for another time. That's a whole philosophical and theological discussion that we'll take up at some other point. But what I'm trying to say could best, is best captured in a quote by an Australian businessman, Alan Bond. And Alan Bond is credited with saying this, I've always worked very, very hard. And the harder I worked, the luckier I got. You see, Florence List has so many four-leaf clovers because she has developed her sense of observation through practice and experience, which is really another way of saying hard work. She is better than the average person at finding four-leaf clovers. And the same is true of hearing from God. There are some people who wonder why they never hear from God, and yet they spend no time in prayer or meditation, and they rarely, if ever, crack their Bibles open. It would actually be like Florence List never leaving this room and wondering why she's not finding any four-leaf clovers. Did you find it? You found it? Okay. For those of you who haven't seen it, there it is, right there. Okay? Um, you know, just because you pray and just because you study the Bible is no guarantee that you're going to hear directly from God, and it certainly doesn't mean that you're going to get the message that you are looking for. But if you spend time in prayer and meditation, if you spend time reading the Bible, you'll increase your chances that you'll hear from God. You see, we have to interact. We have to interact with God and his word if we expect to hear from him. And it also helps to interact expectantly, expectantly, to have the attitude that something is going to happen. And when we do, what it really does is it increases the probability that we'll recognize it when it does happen. Because I believe that God is always speaking to us, constantly speaking to us in everything, through his creation, through other people, through his word, through prayer, through meditation. And, you know, we can find God anywhere. After all, it is his creation. He is God. It's just that we aren't often looking for it. You see, too many times we're focused instead on the mundane, on the everyday, the 
humdrum, so I guess we could say the ordinary, instead of being focused on the divine. And it really kind of reminded me of this Norman Rockwell painting called Lift Up Thine Eyes. If we zero in a little bit more closely, you can see the man is putting on the signboard the slogan, lift up thine eyes, and look at the people on the sidewalk down below, you know, doing anything but. So we have this beautiful song from Mary. It's called the Magnificat. It's her response to being asked to bear the Messiah. And we think, now there, there is someone who has expectant faith. There is someone who was not only waiting on God, but she was waiting for God, right? I don't know. I don't know. Was she? You know, while it helps to pray expectantly and while it helps to read the Bible expectantly, and I highly recommend both of those, by the way, God has the ability to speak to anyone at any time, whether we're looking for him or not, because he is God. Well, one thing we do know, when God speaks, it's intimidating. Whether he speaks or whether he sends an angel, it is intimidating. And we're going to look at some of the verses before the Magnificat, before Mary's song. And we're first going to start, uh, they're all in chapter 1, as is the uh, Mary's song. And we're going to look at verses 26, 7, and 8. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. So we learned some stuff in this verse. We learned that it was, it's been six months since Elizabeth has become pregnant. We learned about Elizabeth last week. Mary's relative, and uh, we don't know exactly where this angelic appearance occurred other than that it occurred in Nazareth. When Josh and I were in Israel, we visited Nazareth, and there are two traditions as to where Gabriel appeared to Mary. The first is held by the Catholic Church, and it's the biggest Catholic church in the Middle East. It's really hard to get a picture of because it's in the village, the city of Nazareth, and it's hard to get a perspective to, you know, get the whole church in. But it's believed that this church is built over Mary's house. And inside, you can see a structure that they believe was Mary's house, and they believe that that's where the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary. The second tradition is held by the Greek Orthodox Church. And they believe that Gabriel appeared to Mary at the town well, and that's about a quarter of a mile from Mary's house. And the church of St. Gabriel is built over top of that site. And if you look inside, this is only a small portion of the, of the church. If you look at the back of that center portion, there's a pit, and that goes down to the town well. The neat thing about it is that this is the only 2,000-year-old well in Nazareth. So we know that this is where Mary drew her water. Whether the angel appeared there to her or not, we don't know. But that is where Mary would have gone to get her water. Now, there wasn't a church built over top of it. Uh, that was done a few years later. Um, we also learn in this passage that Mary is engaged. She's engaged to Joseph, a descendant of David. 
we learn that she's a virgin and that she's highly favored by God. Did that make Mary special? Yeah, it did. It does. It did. But we're favored by God too, right? Keep that in mind as we go through this message. No matter what, Mary was most likely involved in the mundane, in the everyday chores that she was involved with when the angel appeared to her. We don't know if Mary had an expectant faith or not, but I am sure that she probably wasn't expecting an angelic visit. One thing that such visits have in common, and Josh told us this last week, is that they instilled fear in the recipients. You know, what, what is the first thing that all angels always say to people? Don't be afraid, right? Fear not. Don't be afraid. And Mary was no exception at all. Now, seeing an angel must have been terrifying. I've never seen an angel, but I imagine it had to be really intimidating. But I wonder if it would be the same for us today. You know, with all the glitz and the earthly glamour that are a part of our world, I wonder how impressive an angel would be to us. And I got thinking about that, and then I thought, you know, it's really not the actual appearance of the angel. It's the knowledge that the angel has come from the very presence of God. That would be intimidating. That's for sure. Look at verses 29 through uh, 33. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Angels given Mary a lot of information here. In fact, if you look, there's seven pieces of information that Gabriel's delivering to Mary at this point. And Mary's response? Well, I think we really see the humanness of Mary in her response. Because what does she focus on? What's the first thing that she says to the angel? Look at verse 33. How will this be? How is this going to happen? Since I am a virgin. Mary hadn't heard the, the, most of what the angel said to her. She was stuck back on, you're going to become pregnant. And she didn't understand, of course, how that was going to take place. And, you know, that really brings us to the first thing that we need when we're called by God, and that is time. Mary needed some time. She needed time to process all that the angel was telling her. And we can see that it took her some time because she uh, wasn't able to, to get it all uh, in her head. She needed to process all that the angel was telling her before she could sing her song, too. Now, notice that the angel explains some things to her in verses 35 through 37. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. So Gabriel tells Mary how this is going to take place, how this is going to occur. And if, if any proof is needed, the angel provides it to Mary. Reminds her that her relative, we don't know if it was her cousin or her aunt, uh, but her relative, Elizabeth, 
is already six months pregnant, even in her old age. And then Gabriel gives Mary a very reassuring promise too. He says, no word from God will ever fail. The angel provided answers for Mary. And that is the next thing that we need when God calls us. Now, we don't get all the answers. I can pretty much guarantee you that, that you won't get all the answers when God calls you. Mary didn't, but she got enough. She got enough to be able to respond, and she does so in verse 38. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Even though Mary didn't have all of the answers, she responded. She says that she is the Lord's servant and that she indicates that she is ready for what the angel said to be fulfilled. And that is acting in faith. And faith is the third requirement that we have when God calls us. You know, God never gives us all the answers that we want. If he did, it would really take the element of faith away, wouldn't it? It would remove that element of faith from our response. Faith is a necessary aspect of any true calling from God. But there's still one area that Mary needs before she can sing her song. And to find that out, let's look at verses 39 through 45. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried, into, uh, hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fu would fulfill his promises to her. Elizabeth uh, responds to Mary's visit. And Mary hadn't told her that she was pregnant. I'm thinking that maybe the Holy Spirit had revealed this to Elizabeth. Maybe Mary had a glow about her that gave it away. You know, we don't know. But we do know that Elizabeth's greeting provided affirmation to Mary. Think about the encouragement that you would have received as Mary from Elizabeth in what Elizabeth had to say in these verses. Uh, a tremendous amount of uh, affirmation. And so that is the, the fourth thing that we need when God calls us, affirmation. Now, I can attest that these four things are necessary when, when God calls you because I've experienced them myself. If some of you know that I was an elementary teacher uh, and a principal for a number of years, and uh, I really knew that I wanted to become a teacher, probably starting back as early as, as fifth grade. And that was pretty much cemented in place by the time I was in, in eighth grade. And I was very comfortable with this life goal. And then after I began to understand, got a little older and began to understand what a, what a calling is, I knew that teaching was my calling. But I received another call from God, even before I was out of high school, and that was to go into the ministry. And that call got stronger and stronger as the years went by, but I ignored it. In fact, I really, were, I, I really strove to flee from it. I didn't want anything to do with it. But I preached my first sermon when I was uh, just a, 
had just uh, finished my freshman year in college. That was 1972. But I still was resisting that calling. There was no way that I was going into the ministry because I knew, you see, I knew that teaching was my calling. And uh, I couldn't think that teaching and the ministry uh, could be combined. I just thought that they were kind of mutually exclusive. I, I just couldn't see how they could possibly fit together. And so, you see, I needed time. I needed time to process this calling. And more years went by, a couple of years went by, and I was sitting on a bus outside of the student center at Elizabethtown College, and we were taking a trip. I don't remember where that was. I think it was to Washington, D.C. I wasn't even thinking about this calling to the ministry. Furthest thing from my mind, and God spoke to me in a very clear voice to me, I heard these words, what are you waiting for? I knew it wasn't me. And I knew what the message was and what it was referring to. I knew it was God speaking to me. And then I also knew at this point that there was no turning back. I knew that I had to be true to that calling. Now, you know, I can't say that I was sore afraid when I heard that voice of God, but I was in awe, definitely awestruck, uh, and I knew I couldn't refuse. So I needed some answers at this point. And so I tried to get some answers. I, I talked to one of my religion professors at, at, uh, the, at college. I talked to my pastor, Bob Latchaw, and I found out about a thing called bivocational ministry where you could have a regular job and then you could also be involved in the ministry as well. And yet I still drug my feet for a couple of years more, even after this. But finally in, the December, in December of 1975, I was licensed into the ministry and that was an act of faith. Because you see, I didn't know what it was really gonna mean for me. I didn't know if it meant that I was gonna to have to give up teaching I didn't know what kind of an impact that was going to have on my life. I certainly didn't see how the ministry and teaching were going to fit together. And then there was one more thing. I didn't want to do it. I truly did not want to do it. But when I did, when I took that step of faith, then the affirmations began to roll in. I received encouragement from a lot of people here at Parker Ford Church. I also received a lot of opportunities for ministry that dovetailed with my teaching. It was really, it was amazing. And today, I want to give you this affirmation. There is no better place to be, no better place to be than in the will of God in your life. Just isn't. No better place. Because when you are in the will of God, those affirmations will continue to come in to assure you that you are doing what God's will is in your life. And I believe also that it is then and only then that you can experience true joy. Such was the case with Mary. Her joy knew no bounds at this point. In fact, her joy could not be contained, and she breaks forth into song, which is our text for today. You know, uh, Josh pointed out that these songs are really uh, a form of poetry, 
And I don't know if Mary was a poet. I certainly know that I am not a poet. And yet there have been at least two times when I have been affected by deep emotion and I've written poetry. One was at a time when it really wasn't a joyful time. It was uh, when my mother-in-law passed away in 2007. But I was moved by the example of her life to put that into poetry and, uh, and did so. And maybe it was born out of the joy of knowing her and having experienced her and, re and I was remembering her through that poem. And the other time was about a year and a few months ago when Lauren was married, and, and I was moved to write a poem entitled Hand in Hand. And again, it was born out of a time of, of deep emotion. And those poems virtually flowed. It was as if they were writing themselves. It was certainly not something that I was familiar with. And in both, case, in both cases, those who read that, those poems are affected by the same deep emotion that helped to create them. Mary's poem was overflowing joy from her soul, the, the, the joy that she's experiencing. She's been chosen by God to do something special, and she cannot help but sing. Yes, she needed some more time. Yes, she needed some more answers. Her faith was going to be tried. But she knew beyond all shadow of a doubt that she was doing what God had chosen her to do, what God wanted her to do. And she was prepared to trust in God. Let's read this Song of Mary again. And this time, think about it as just this overwhelming, welling up joy coming from her soul. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. This song of Mary has been called the most revolutionary document in the world. We read it today and we think, revolutionary? That sounds really pretty. It's really beautiful. But is it revolutionary? It just doesn't sound that way to us. Mary's song can really be divided into, into four sections. The first section, verses 46 and 47, it really just glorifies God. And that's the, a great way to start out any song, isn't it? Or any prayer. And then the next section, verses 48 to 50, expresses gratitude on Mary's behalf. Perhaps even amazement that she has been selected. She's been chosen and therefore blessed by the Mighty One. And then if we skip to the end of her song, verses 54 and 55, the last section really recalls God's faithfulness to all generations. She mentions Israel and she mentions Abraham. And she indicates that God has always been at work. And certainly we saw that in, in Zechariah's song last week. And God continues to be at work. 
But it's the third section that's revolutionary in Mary's song. And we, we, again, when we read it today, it doesn't sound all that extreme. But we have to keep Mary's world in mind when we read it. And there are three revolutionary thoughts that are contained in this portion of her song. Mary says, he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Now, how's that revolutionary? Well, Mary speaks here of a moral revolution. It's the death of pride. And how did that happen? How is that possible? It's because Jesus was coming. No one, no one is able to be proud when we compare ourselves to the person of Jesus Christ. All that pride, it just evaporates. When we live our lives and we compare our lives against Jesus, any vestige of pride is just torn away. You've heard of the author O. Henry. You know, he's famous for writing the short story, The Gift of the Magi. He wrote another story that was about a boy who grew up in a village. And when he was in school, he sat next to a girl, and they were fond of each other. And he admired her sweetness, and he admired her innocence and her purity. And the boy grew up, and he moved to the city, and he fell into evil ways, and he became a pickpocket and a petty thief. And one day he snatched an old woman's purse. And he was really pleased with the job that he had done. It took some cleverness, and he was really proud of that. And he was going down the street. And who should he see coming the other way but this girl that he used to sit next to in school? And she was still filled with that radiance of sweetness and, and innocence and purity. And it was then that he saw himself for who he really was. And he put his head against the lamppost and said, God, I wish I could die. Christ enables us to see ourselves for who we really are. The second revolutionary idea in Mary's song is found in verse 52. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Where the previous verse talked about a moral revolution, this is a social revolution. And here is yet another example of Christ coming to reverse the accepted standards of the world and really to challenge the status quo. The idea that those in charge would be brought low and that the lowly would be exalted in Mary's day was revolutionary. It absolutely, it was revolutionary in her day and the idea of it being revolutionary has continued even to this day. In fact, as late as the 1940s, the, Arch 40s, the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, warned his missionaries in India to never read the Magnificat, Mary's song, in public. Because in India, it's a culture that is based on social classes, and this would have been heretical. And it still is. Social position continues even today to be of supreme importance in our world. Think about who the world worships. Think about who the world gives importance to and who gets attention. When we consider what Christ has done for each and every one of us, it is simply no longer possible to regard anyone as being beneath us. In Christ, we find an end to the world's labels and prestige. The final revolution in Mary's song is found in verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. First, a moral revolution, 
then a social revolution, and now an economic revolution. In Mary's day, more so than at any other time, if you were rich, you stayed rich. If you were rich, you wanted not. And if you were poor, you had nothing. And you were often, too often, sent away empty. But once again, Jesus came to reverse that thinking. William Barclay, the commentator, puts it this way. A non-Christian society is an acquisitive society. Not an inquisitive, but an acquisitive. In other words, acquiring things, okay? A non-Christian society is an acquisitive society where people are out for as much as they can get. A Christian society is where no one dares to have too much while others have too little, where everyone must get only to give away. Which society sounds more like the United States of America? Especially at this time of year, commercialized time of year. I just heard on the radio that there has been an increase in self-gifting at Christmas time. You know what self-gifting is? I mean, you can probably imagine what it is. It's people who use Christmas as an excuse to buy themselves a present. And it's estimated that Americans are spending, this Christmas season, are spending 17% of what they spend on gifts for themselves. Hmm. You know, ingrained societal ideals are really hard to combat against and to to do battle against. And yet that's what Christ came to do. You know, this song of Mary is a most beautiful expression coming from her heart. And she says it, it comes from her soul, in fact. Um, you know, it's, it's really a, a heart that's been transformed. Remember how the story started? She was filled with fear and trepidation. She was filled with questions and anxiety. But she gave permission. And she allowed faith to work in her life. And... As a result, she was truly able to move from anxiety to adoration. Anxiety to adoration. And the song that she is now able to sing was packed with revolutionary dynamite, accurately predicting what the coming of the Savior would mean in our world. You know, it's amazing, totally amazing what can happen when we allow God into our lives and then further invite him to communicate his will for our lives. May each and every one of us be able to echo Mary's words, I am the Lord's servant. May your words to me be fulfilled. That is truly a prayer of trust, a song of trust. Let us pray.